This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. I'm joined by L.A. Opera music director James Conlon, who is conducting the company's run of Orpheus and Eurydice by Christoph Gluck. We'll talk about the many reforms that Gluck and his librettist brought to the operatic world and how Gluck was ahead of his time in the mid-18th century, even more than he gets credit for today. I thought we'd better start by sort of putting Gluck in context. So he's... Uh, what, like 18 years older than Haydn, but like almost 30 years younger than Bach. He's right in that sort of middle space between what we think of as the Baroque era and the classical era, right? Well, there he is, yeah. I mean, <laughs> plunking in the middle of the... Uh, Transition uh, period. Yeah, of the 18th century. And he's, and he's a very important transitional figure because uh, he had strong feelings about reforms that were important and that and that his influence as a reformer went all the way into the 19th century and that to the, that he was held up as an example by both Berlioz and Wagner so very important even though the articulation of those ideas was his librettist whose name was Calzopigi who wrote the tract on what were those reforms and what needed to be done. But there's no question that Gluck's, um, Gluck's influence was enormous after his life. We um, tend to break down classical music history through these sort of time periods. But, you know, when you're in those moments, when you're in, you know, the, the mid-1700s, the mid-18th century, you're not thinking in terms of, you know, the grand historical eras just like right now, we're not really calling this musical period much of anything. So in a way, I feel like it's kind of unfair um, to these composers that uh, lived in the spaces between um, that we, we th- tend to put the weight of all of that transition and all of that musical history, you know, on them in a way. Like, but there was no context. There was no division in musical styles, like 1750 comes along and now we're going to change everything. It wasn't that cut and dried, right? Well, first of all, categories limit. Right. Categories do not reveal the fullness of any piece of music, just as categories about people. Uh, you know, when we look into stereotypes, we look at racial stereotypes, we look at religious stereotypes. It's always limiting the person, the human being, in his or her fullness. That's the same for music. Music is beyond category. So, you know, we can chat about categories, but we should also put them in a relative place. Not that important. What is important is the individual and the individual product. And uh, Orpheus is, uh, I still call it Orpheus. I mean, (laughs) Orpheus is is a timeless myth, has many aspects to it. Gluck diminished that. Uh, he, he doesn't tell the beginning of the story and it doesn't go on to say what happened after the end of this story. He concentrates fully on his loss of his young wife, uh, Eurydice, who goes to the underworld. He, through his, the power of his, his uh, singing, his poetry, he's able to win 
uh, win her back from the powers of the underworld. And they, uh, as most gods do, they make a deal. And if you fulfill the deal and he by accident really doesn't fulfill the deal, he looks back at her. He was he, Prematurely, he loses her again. Now, the myth goes on. It's pretty sad. He's just gone. And she's back down there and he's lost her. And he hangs around the earth, eventually destroyed. It's a bad, it's a, it's, it's a sad myth. But we're not doing that. Our Gluck, for whatever reason, there's a happy ending. They are, she, she's restored to him. They are going to live happily ever after because that was a little bit the tenor of the times. But the reforms said he was, the, that's really, really interesting material. Mm-hmm. Well, talk a little bit about these, um, these reforms. Uh, Gluck was doing, I guess you could say he was doing Gesamtkunstwerk before that was even a term, right? He was wanting to combine all of these elements of, uh, of great poetry, of, uh, of dance, of music, uh, put all of these things together, you know, 75 years before Wagner even thought, thought to use that term as it related to, to music drama, right? Well, that term did, simply didn't exist right, at the yeah. time. Uh, so I, I think that the essence of what he was after was he felt constricted by the, the division between serious opera and, and comic opera. So opera seria, which was serious, which brought all sorts of conventions and demands on it, and opera buffa, comic opera, which I think he thought was somewhat trivial. Now, he first and foremost wanted to destroy the what was called the recitativo secco. That's a dry recitative. What's a dry recitative? It's the one that's, a, that's accompanied by a harpsichord or cembalo a little later by the fortepiano. He wanted to break down the division, the start and stop, start and go character that we, we, we associate with classical opera, whereas there was a frozen moment of reflection where somebody sings a so-called aria, and then the action is pushed forward by the recitative, and then it stops again. And the demand of opera seria in particular was a long string of arias all night long. And not only that, every aria had a very strict form. It's the so-called da capo aria, which means, da capo meaning go back to the beginning, um, basically had what we call an ABA form. That means you sing a certain piece, then there's a, a varied part, and at the end of that second part, you go back to the beginning with the big difference that the second time, the singer gets to freely ornament their, uh, their the, the first part. Now, he was against it on two First of all, he didn't want to give that much freedom to the singers. And remember, the singers were f- almost, in many cases, more important than the composers. The composers seemed to be there to serve the singer. And he was he, he didn't like that. I don't blame him. You know, many other, other composers complained. And Verdi was the big example of that. So uh, so he wants to get rid of it on that because he, he, he doesn't want to give them that much freedom. But second, he said... That stops the action. Why do we why do we need and go back and repeat a text all over again? So he wants to get the da capo aria out of there. He wants to not have the interruptions with the harpsichords. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have recitatives where which are more conversational in character, but he keeps the orchestra active. In other words, the orchestra will continue to to play all the time. That was another reform. Now, another part of the reform was 
he wasn't going to write florid music just for the sake of doing so. That he didn't necessarily want. Said at one point, you know, I, I don't want because I like a particular syllable doesn't mean I want to repeat it uh, for forty bars. You know, so he wants to get it more conversational. He wants to get it to be more immediate. He wants direct emotions, and those are some of the uh, the little ways in which he's pushing the art form forward. If I may add, another thing was the libretto the text. Now, Calza BG is really probably the more revolutionary or the more uh, the articulator of these viewpoints, but it was a it was a felicitous marriage between the two of them. Now, the big character in texts was Metastasio. Metastasio, an Italian who wrote, I mean, he it was a factory. He wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of libretto, libretti, and by the way, Gluck said I don't know, 10 or 12 operas to Metastasio, texts. So his uh, Calcid BG more than Gluck, but th- their criticism or their reserves about being tied into the uh, Metastasio's type of verse was that it was full of metaphor and lots of reflection. In other words, um, it's, while you're in love, you reflect on being in love. Gluck and Calcid BG wanted to feel that you were in love, more direct. So there was less talks of, you know, a beautiful breezes and the sun is shining and the trees are green when I'm in love with you, my dear. When there was anger, instead of uh, referring back to Greek gods, uh, Greek gods or Zeus's anger or Prometheus's for constant metaphor in Metastasio. They wanted more direct speech and they provided it. How did they accomplish that? What, what are some examples of you know, just giving you this sort of visceral feeling. Because that's a, a um, certainly when you hear this opera, when you see this opera, you know, the the emotion is palpable. And, and in particular, I guess this production, um, in reading about this production, it really, um, you know, focuses directly in on the, you know, the emotional content of what the singers are singing about. Well, uh, another aspect of the, of the reforms is to give a more prominent role to the chorus. Mm-hmm. Uh, choruses were in a, not a secondary role, they were in a tertiary role, pr- frankly, at the time, if at all. There were a lot of operas without any chorus whatsoever. And in Metastasio's structures, there were always at least six characters. There were always got to be two pair of lovers. And then in there might be conflict and mistaken identities. And there was a lot of intrigue. Now, they felt, Cook and Calcibidu, that that was not a necessity. They didn't want to be stuck with that. To them, there was one direct story. It was about the, the lamentations of Orpheus as he, in mourning as he had lost his wife, his determination to go find her in the underworld, his success in doing so. They're meeting each other in confrontation, and then the test, which at first he fails and he loses her for a second time. Uh, that's pretty emotional stuff, and he didn't want, uh, you know, bringing in another couple or anything like that. And he gives voice to the chorus immediately. They sing, I mean, the opening bars of the beginning, the lament is extraordinary. The chorus is very important. Later on, they become the Furies who guard the gates of hell. And they're there to celebrate with the couple when they are finally united at the end of the opera. So the chorus becomes far more important. And there's only one there's a third character, and that's all, the three characters in the opera, and that's the god, amor, love, uh, sort of like Cupid, who plays a role in guiding uh, guiding Orpheus. 
that seems pretty simple to us right now. I said, yeah, you want three characters? Take three characters. Put a chorus in. But it wasn't so. There were a lot of, there were a lot of expectations. Mm-hmm. And this was, especially in the second version, which is what we're doing, the French version, there had been a quarrel between the Italian traditionalists and the the new French music, Rameau and Lully, Rameau particularly, it was called the Querelle des Buffons. That's the, the quarrel of the comedians. And it was quite, I mean, they got violent. Now, that was in the 1850s. That had more or less played itself out by the time Gluck comes to Paris. But it was brought back in. And so Piccini was the going Italian at the time. And the Gluck follows her Gluck, and the follows of Piccini got lined up against each other. I, I don't think the composers were involved in that, by the way. I think I understood they had mutual admiration. Hmm. So, but it was just too different. It, was, it became a national, almost a nationalist yeah. thing. You know? yeah. um, the use of dance, uh, ballet in this opera, um, does that have an, anything to do with you know, what would come later in French opera where ballet is such an important part, or is this completely uh, different from that? No, that is very French. First, I should point out that there are more than one version of, of Orpheus and Eurydice. The first one is Orfeo. It's in Italian. It was premiered in Vienna in 1762. And it does not have a prominent role for any dance. Uh, there's a possibility of some dance, but there's not really, it's not really important. And now it'll pass. And it was written, by the way, for a contralto castrato. That's a man uh, who is... It's a castrato. He has a lower voice. I mean, it's a lower voice. There are soprano castrati. And in fact, at one of the first revivals of it in Parma, he changed that to a soprano castrato. In other words, so it went up, that the range went up. When he came to France, he had a a tenor because the castrati were not particularly popular in Paris. So... He was, of course, you know, catering to the tastes in all these cases. So he writes it for tenor, which requires it to be transposed. A lot of the keys had to change again. But most important, it's the demand that dance play a prominent role. Uh, it, bear in mind that the French opera basically was preceded by the dance. Dance is fundamental in French culture. In fact, the orchestra of Lully, which was the da- who was the dance master, he wrote music, but he was the dance master, uh, is the direct predecessor of the orchestra of which I was principal conductor, which is the Paris Opera Orchestra. That line can be drawn all the way back mm. to the time uh, because dance was fundamental. And then music got added to it. So the opera was, once again, it import from Italy, but then the French, in reacting to it themselves, you know, start to develop their own style, but that style always involved dance, and there were there were no operas without ballet. This was the great scandal that Wagner mm-hmm. offended them because knowing that people would, want, would expect that dance to be midway in the evening, he put it at the beginning of the evening and enraged people who didn't bother to show up for the beginning of the opera, but they wanted to see the ballet. So, in that, there's a great dance master and a great tradition there. He was able to expand that. So he expanded the dance numbers. And in fact, the opera finished with a dance, not with a chorus. Mm. So this production, uh, which is the, the second version, the French version from, from 74, 
includes all of that dance and uh, includes uh, dancers from the Joffrey Ballet, is that correct? No, well, it doesn't include. It's based... This is a, a, a production of John Neumeyer, who's one of the great, great, great choreographers, been in Hamburg most of his life. He's American, but uh, he's essentially an expatriate, uh, whom, of course, in Germany is uh, idolized. And uh, so he is collaborating with the Joffrey. Of course, he has his own company in Hamburg. Uh, and so the dance is into totally integrated. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a danced opera, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the very special qualities that, that John Neumeier is going to bring to this. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's different from the original conception, but it's not something from outer space because dance was a pretty, pretty fundamental part, uh, especially of the second version. Mm-hmm. And I, and I might add that now we've had a contralto castrato, we've had a soprano castrato, and now we get a tenor. In the 19th century, Berlioz revises, relooks at Orpheus um, with the help of his young assistant, who was Camille Sassons. And why? Because there is a popular mezzo-soprano, and so he puts the mezzo-soprano in Orpheus, so, whereas at first we had two castrati singing and then moved to a tenor, now it becomes a so-called trouser role. It's a woman singing a male role. And there it remained pretty much into our time. By, by and large, it's sung by mezzo-sopranos. Now, that's when the Italian, Italian version was being sung. And yet... I grew up under the deep influence for this opera under Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau mm-hmm. because he sang it and he, and he recorded it twice. And at the age of 17, I heard him to, in Carnegie Hall, live performance, Fischer-Dieskau singing Orpheus, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf singing Eurydice, and Lucia Pop singing Amor. That was my first live Orpheus. That's not bad. <laughs> oh, it was sublime. It was sublime. So Wow. For whatever reason, there are this, this, these choices. Uh, the French version was performed much more rarely than the Italian version, uh, which I think requires a tenor. Mm-hmm. And so we have a tenor. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding that role is pitched very high for, a, for tenors. Is, is that true? Yes, it's yeah. true. It's, it's true. But, uh, you know, in those days... Like difficult to sing. Well, they're difficult to sing, but, you know, the tenors did not use uh, their full voice above a certain level. Mm-hmm. That only came in in the 19th century. They used to call it the do, that's the, the C natural, mm-hmm. di petto, that came from the chest, which means that what is required of all tenors today is to use their entire voice. They sang with a sort of falsetto mm-hmm. over a certain point. So uh, now nobody would accept that today, but that's how that's how they did it. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess A wouldn't be 440. Well, it was a little lower. Yeah, Yeah, it was a little lower. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Audiences probably, maybe without even knowing it, know that they know about five minutes of this opera, the the Dance of the Blessed Spirits. Um, What other musical elements um, are are there to to sort of um, give us a sense for the musical language of of this opera? I don't think you need to know anything. (laughs) It's, It's one of the most beautiful operas I know. The music is is so moving, so touching, so so lyrical, so har- harmonically beautiful. There's really nothing to know. That that's the most famous excerpt and 
Of, of course, the most famous is the lament of Orpheus, what will I do without you? It's a che farò senza Euridice, Euridice in Italian. These are the most famous numbers. But um, I don't think we need any preparation. No, no, pre- <laughs> no preparation necessary. Come and be ready to be, uh, uh, to be taken on an taken emotional away. journey. Taken yeah. away, absolutely. He's conducting the upcoming run of Orpheus and Eurydice by Christoph Gluck. Starring Maxim Miranov as Orpheus, Lisette Oropesa as Eurydice, and Liv Redpath as the God of Love. Six performances march 10 through 25 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen.